Hello, and welcome to the Council Culture Podcast, a podcast where we look through the lens of counselling in today's culture to help and equip you to live life to the full wherever you are. believe that everyone should have access to and benefit from the core skills of counselling that help you do life well. Leading ourselves in relationships, mental and emotional health, work and navigating life in these really fast changing times. My name is Nicholas Marks and it is my pleasure to host Council Culture. Hello everyone and thanks for investing your time to listen to today's podcast. We're Really glad you've joined us and also trust you enjoyed and benefited from uh, my recent discussion with Kate Seselja, where she was really vulnerable enough to tell us quite an amazing story from the bondage of addiction to freedom and the journey she's now on living life and really helping others. Remember, at some level, we all have struggled with different addictions and also shame, which we're really going to touch on today. Um, let's hear now from Siobhan's recent interview. Is it is it an interview, Siobhan? Uh, 10 minutes with Siobhan, a, a power chat, a new segment. Maybe what it was it? a power chat because I think Amy was awfully powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, the power chat, uh, it's, a, it's a great little discussion um, that they have with therapist Amy Bain, someone who's really leading the way in uh, new and innovative uh, approaches to addiction and recovery. Uh, we'll hear now from Siobhan and Amy. Welcome, Amy Bain. We're here to talk to you about your work in the area of addiction. Well, thanks, Javon. It's lovely to be here. You work for Tenacious House, which is located in Perth in WA. Tenacious House is a voluntary rehabilitation program for men who want to overcome addiction and co-occurring mental illness. I'm hoping that today we'll be able to pick up on some of the key themes that you've noticed in this specialty area. So it's great to have you here with us. But to begin with, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Um, yeah, I'm the clinical coordinator at Tenacious House. I've been there, I actually started as a volunteer uh, about five or six years ago and then sort of worked my way through and up the organisation. Um, I never anticipated working with men. It was not necessarily my plan. Um, working with men and in particularly in residential really just fell into my lap. And over the years of being there, I've really actually come to realise that um, that that's that's exactly where I needed to be. Um, so I work with a team of uh, clinicians there. We have a few counsellors on staff and then we work with student placements with um, our clients presenting with um, addiction and, and comorbid mental health issues. Um, and, yeah, they're with us for as long as they need to be. We actually don't have a set time frame on our program. We want it to be individualised for each client. Great. So it's really sounds like it's really tailor-made according to the person's difficulties and whatever else is going on in their life, particularly around family and relationships. That's one of the things that I that I noted when I had a look at Tenacious House on the website was that um, you really look towards encouraging meaningful relationships and it's quite family inclusive. Yeah, it is. We will really encourage um, families to engage uh, with us as part of the treatment uh, process and treatment planning with our clients. Obviously, our clients um, need to be on board with that. Uh, most of the time they are, and we would invite the families in or the significant others to um, give them a safe place to you know, learn about what their, their partner or their, their son or brother has been through. 
Mm. Um, and then we will work to that family inclusive approach um, with families, and then we will do couples recovery counselling with our um, with our clients that are in current relationships. Sure. So really, having quite a systemic focus there. Mm. Yeah, we find yeah. that's really important. Great. I've got some questions that I would like to ask you and hoping that uh, we can draw from some of the experience that you've come across. The first Mm. question is, tell me about your experience with clients who present with shame-based difficulties and and what do you believe to be the role of shame in addiction? Mm. Yeah, that's a a really good question. And I suppose to start that question, um, I'd really just want to reflect on my first encounter with uh, shame in the therapy room. Um, Through my studies, it was an area, uh, I suppose, a topic that I hadn't really done much learning or study on. So it wasn't an area that uh, I really focused on or paid any attention to in Mm counselling with my clients. Um, It was probably about four or five years ago uh, when my first client that I was working with, I remember he um, he came in to the counselling room and he was in his mid-30s. He presented with methamphetamine addiction uh, by injection and then upon further assessment we just we figured out there was also gambling addiction um, and co-occurring uh, mental health. Um, in our second session, I felt an immense presence in the room. I can't describe it any other way. It was, it was a heaviness in the room mm. and I really didn't know uh, what it was and it really took me off guard and I remember in that session I found it really difficult to focus I was really uncomfortable um, and I didn't really um, I really struggled in that session you know uh, through supervision and and further you know study and research I, I soon learned that was shame um, I didn't know what to do with it um, but what I did was I I I'll bring it to my client's attention that I'm sensing something. I didn't want to put a word to it just yet. Um, but the moment I said that, he he avoided eye contact and really closed mm. off. And then it was a further three or four months later, he then came in and sat down and disclosed to me that um, as a child he'd been sexually abused by a family member mm-hmm. um, and that then caused him to um, question his sexuality and then as an adult, using methamphetamine, he would often prostitute himself to get drugs. And as an adult male, there were also multiple times where he'd been sexually assaulted. Um, that was heavy information for a new counsellor, still a graduate counsellor mm. here. Um, and this was the first time he'd ever told anyone. So right then and there, I realised, wow, this is actually my clientele. This is going to be an area that... I need to understand, I need to be familiar with, I need to be confident and comfortable with mm. and I need to be able to learn how to help my clients navigate this because the connection between addiction and shame is so, so tangible, you can't separate them. Um, I find that my clients either have shame from childhood trauma, um, not always sexual trauma it can be you know physical neglect um, um, it can be different situations that have happened but then that shame continues to grow and then whilst they're under the influence they also make poor decisions and and, and unhealthy choices that only increase at the intensity of that shame so not only do they have the shame from from the original 
trauma that they've experienced, but they have the shame from using and the shame from the the choices that they've made while under the influence. Mm, So it sort of keeps growing and it keeps growing and it keeps growing. And as you were saying that, Amy, I was actually thinking about some of the work that I do in working with young people and thinking about the role of developmental trauma and what that actually means for young people around their adolescence and identity formation. Mm -hmm. And I think you've just explained that in a nutshell, that having that shame as a child and then taking that on as an adolescent and then into adulthood and that layer upon layer that you've just explained, uh, I think really brings that home for me. Mm. And a lot of the clients, um, they don't understand what it is. They don't know what it is, Mm. Uh, particularly when we're dealing with addiction. We're dealing with clients that really struggle with the ability to self-regulate their emotions Mm. and even actually name their emotions. I work predominantly with men. So the the overarching emotion that they will use is anger. Um, And then they'll come and say, oh, I feel rejected. Oh, I feel this. You know, and I'm like, that's a perception. In that moment, you perceived that you were rejected. What's the feeling behind that? Like what's the actual emotion that you are feeling? Mm. And it's really, Mm. they find it really difficult to do that. And um, because of that, um, they don't really have an understanding of shame. So we find that we need to do some education around shame and we use Brene Brown's um, work. We we utilise her Connections curriculum and then some of her material um, to really help them to understand uh, what uh, what shame is and the difference between guilt and shame. Um, but as a therapist now, I can pick it up pretty quickly in the therapy room Um you know, through their body language with the the lack of eye contact, they'll recluse into their chair, they might fold their arms, you know, they'll move into the corner of the couch um, furthest away from me as they possibly can. And, you know, the only other way I can sort of describe it, it's like, you know, shame is like that monster lurking in the background and Mm -hmm. it's waiting for the moment those defences try to go down. Shame will try and silence. Shame is that voice that will be, only people knew. You can't say that. You will be judged if you say that. They will not accept you. And so that therapeutic alliance and the trust and safety that you can create in that relationship is so vital um, because if you don't have that, um, they're not going to feel safe enough to go to those places. Mm, That's a, a really poignant point that you make there around being able to help the client to feel safe. Um, So that sort of leads me on to my next question, which is how important is it to see the person's humanness underneath the addictive behaviour and to be able to offer them that safety in the room? Yeah, it's so important. There's a lot of stigma associated with um, addiction, um, particularly men and addiction, but just in general, there's a lot of of negative connotations within our community society Mm. and in the media Mm. Um, and a lot of people can be very judgmental about people that are in addiction oh they just need to stop using oh they just need to stop being so selfish Uh, what they don't understand is that underneath that there are so many layers and layers and layers that this person has been through and um, seeing underneath or behind the addiction is so important you know it's it's looking past the behavior to see the person and, um, you know, I'll often say to my clients, and I actually just said it um, this week in session, you know, you know, I say something like, you know, I see past your addiction. I see past the using. I see past your anger. I see past all of what you choose to let people see. 
You know, I actually see you and I'll have maintain eye contact as I say that. You know, I say, I see you. I see who you are and I actually see and feel the pain that you are experiencing. Mm. You know, and the moment that you do that, well, the moment that I've done that, I, I can sense the defences going down um, because often people with addiction will have protective behaviours. Addiction is a protective behaviour by default. So you've, you're dealing with someone who is doing everything they can to try and protect themselves, protect themselves from hurt from people, from, you know, rejection, from fear, whatever that is for them. They're trying to protect themselves and you've got to get past those protective barriers to the person and it does take a lot of effort for the therapist to do that Um, but once you get there you have such a good relationship um, with the person and it's really getting to the point where instead of asking the person like well what's wrong with you what's you know what is it what why can't you just stop using we really want to reframe that and and ask a question around what's actually happened to you you know what has happened in your life that has led you here Mm. you know to let them it puts a whole other slant to that to that shame of what is mm. wrong with me as opposed mm. to I never considered what happened to me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, I part of my um part of my research uh and in, in my masters that I did was really around shame. And um when I was interviewing, I interviewed both, you know, former clients and then also a number of therapists. And I learned a lot in that process. And one of the therapists that I interviewed um, said this quote and it's and it stuck with me. And, and this quote really made me change directions with my research. Um, and, and the quote was that, you know, if I'm not relaxed enough in my own humanness, it will only get in the way of how we connect with others. And that really made me take a look at myself and it made me reflect and really think and consider that if I'm going to do this level of work with my clients, if I'm going to really look and address shame with my clients, I actually need to be comfortable with shame, meaning I need to acquaint myself with my own shame. I need to work or process any of my own shame um, so that it's not getting in the way of me creating that sense of safety with my clients. I liken it to a dance in a therapy room. And if I go in there with my shame, you know, you think of like a, you know, like a tango or something, you know, you know, like really strong steps back and forth, you know, that's not what you want in the therapy room. You want it to be cohesive and really you want the client to feel like they are in control and that it is really about them and their issues. And it's not about me as a therapist and my issues. Mm. I really like that, Amy. I think essentially what you're saying is is that you need to be able to call your shame for what it is and really see it and really acknowledge it and really become curious with that in order for you to be able to facilitate the same process with your client. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Amy, thank you for your time today and for all that you've shared about your work. We've really only had a sneak peek into the day in the life of Amy at work and the amazing therapy that you do with with these men who come in lost and broken and really wanting to live a better life. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Well, thanks, Siobhan, uh, for that, that power chat with Amy. That was, that was great. There's, again, thinking about what Kate 
uh, spoke on in recent weeks and your conversation with Amy. I want to put the hosting hat down, if you like, and and say hello to you, Siobhan, and to you, Max, and the three of us uh, have a conversation and, and maybe unpack some of the key things that we've taken away from these, what's really spanning across three podcasts. I hope our listeners can stay with us here. Uh, and and what some of that means and, uh, and and what do we want to you know drill and focus in on today. So hello to you. Hello to you, Max. Hi, Nick. Hi, Siobhan. Great to be here again. Hello. It's great to be here again. Yeah. And what a great interview with um, with Amy. I thought it was pretty powerful, some of the poignant things that she brought up, particularly around her work in in shame and addictions and what she actually notices in the therapy room. It was quite powerful. Mm, I loved what she said um, with in the context of working with her clients, she said, I really see you. Um, I see what is going on for you as a, as a person hiding or in pain or covering your shame. Mm. Um, and just the value of that, you know, for a, a person who's struggling with being known or being seen, that there's a, a person on the other side who is non-judging and who says, hey, you don't have to do that. I can, I can see the pain. I can see you for uh, who you are and you're accepted and you are um, a human and you're welcome mm. and you're not judged. Mm. It's great value Absolutely. In that. And I think what really stood out for me in regards to that, Max, was that she talked about making sure that she's got stability and safety with that client before she exposes that vulnerability and shame mm. um, so that they are in a position where they can actually yeah. look at her and unpack the shame and see what it looks like. The other thing too that really stood out to me was how Amy had said that she needed to work around her own shame because bringing her shame into the room Mm. was actually going to get into the way. And I think that really speaks powerfully into that relationship that a therapist can actually have with their client and how we actually need to address some of those elephants that are in the room, personally ourselves as well. Yeah, that's, that's good. And and it is something even you know preparing for today and and go, going back over what Kate Cecil just said and and your discussion with Amy Siobhan is it's common to all of us, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it made me think about my own and you know have I addressed my own? I think it's a it's always going to be an ongoing journey. I think just for us as human beings and our own human experiences that addressing addressing those yeah. things in our own lives continually it's a process it's a continual process there isn't usually an end date to say right okay that's done now we have to keep looking and and keep searching on the inside it's the it's the the common story we tell ourselves yeah Uh, um and it it's not just a thing that people that struggle with addictions um need to wrestle with but you know as you said nick and siobhan we all have an element of shame. We all struggle with shame. If I think of the clients I work with, um, it's so common and it's such a part of our society where we um, we are self-judging or we are thinking that we're coming ourselves, you're coming short. Um, and it's 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 courageous work to as as we've been chatting to stop and say, well, I've got to do my own work here, my internal. Um, reflection, what story am I telling myself? Mm. Yeah, it's good defining it, isn't it? Because it's, you know, what is shame? Well, it's it's being embarrassed or is it mm. being disgraced and that kind of touches on it, but it, there's more more to it than that, isn't it? It's it's around that um, 
I don't have what it takes or I'm not good enough to be whatever or, or whatever a certain situational moment is. I, I can't do that or I just I, I fail in that and um, then it, it, it ripples out from that, doesn't it? But there's this sense of I don't have what it takes, I'm not good enough and then we allow that wagon to hitch to us and we go, well, becomes at a level of identity again, which we've touched on before, isn't it? It's, it's well, the I am not good enough, therefore that's my, that's my story, as Matt's, t- Matt's touched on. It's I'm not good enough for this or that, and it's therefore it just becomes, well, I'm not good, I'm not enough. And therefore I must hide or I won't, um, you know, I'll go into isolation because I don't want to show that to the world. And you end up sort of almost walking alongside yourself. And, and as Kate said in um, her interview with Unique, uh, you're not you're not real. You're you're not um, you're almost surviving. I think it's to use her words on autopilot, but not being real and willing yeah. to be known. Yeah, yeah. something yeah. about the nature of shame is that it it does hide in the shadows, and it's there in all of our lives to different degrees. And I should just say too, and you, you guys know this, and maybe for our listeners, is shame can be quite different in culture to culture. So we know that some of you may come from. Uh, if you've come from an African culture or an Asian culture, shame can be quite different in terms of what it is and how it's interpreted if we're in an individualistic culture, which is more Western or more of a uh, fam- a family or a familial culture, uh, can be quite different in terms of how shame shame and or honour are interpreted. So we just let's put that out there as a you know as a caveat or as a, an asterisk next to that to say not all shame is the same, but at that individual level it hides in the shadows and then comes up and sort of uh, creeps into our life, and as Max touched on, I think it doesn't. It just it becomes the story, and we're picking up on some of the language that Kurt Thompson uses in his book, "The Soul of Shame." It it becomes part of the story that we tell ourselves. I was with a client this morning, and she's a, a young person. She's just turned eighteen, and I've worked with her for about twelve months now, and uh, she certainly would have what I would call relational trauma. And we were actually speaking just about that today. And she said to me, she said, Siobhan, there's something wrong with me. I'm wrong. Mm. And I said to her, do you ever say to yourself, I'm damaged goods? And she said, I do. And I said, that's shame. And so we spent the whole session talking about the bricks of shame that she carries in her backpack and what would it be like if she was to take out those bricks and do a bit of a spring clean? And how would it be for her if we did an inventory on those bricks and were able to name those bricks and then talk about what bricks of shame does she actually want to give back to the person who shamed her, which can be so powerful. But her narrative, to go back to that language, her narrative in life is yeah, there is yeah. something wrong with me. And no one will ever love yeah. me because I am wrong. Mm. It's similar to what one of the most powerful statements that I think Cade made in her interview is when she openly shared that she, for many years she thought um, God had made her defective. I think she used those words. Mm. And I, I just mm-hmm. sort of heard that and I went, wow, um, that, that is that story, yeah. that self-talk around there's so- something uniquely wrong with me um, that if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me or they wouldn't accept me. Um, yeah. And how how potent it is because Kate said, I marinated in shame daily. 
Mm. Imagine that would what that would be like to marinate daily. I, I remember shame. going back sort of fifteen years here, and I, as a time, I, I became quite long story, and I, the, the short version became quite depressed. And I was certainly drinking a lot, and that was my go-to, you know, self-medication, if you want to call it that. And I think I was like, it's probably what you call a high-function al- alcoholic, where you, you know, holding a job and you're doing everything, you look great on the outside, but underneath you're a red-hot mess. And um, you know, one glass becomes a bottle of, in the evening, that sort of thing. And um, I was probably a workaholic too, I think. Um, and the, the more that they sort of went to those go-to things to sort of get by and not dealing with the issues under the surface, um, the, the more I think I went down this trajectory of which shame does of um, in my emotions and my feelings and then and main, mainly towards myself. Um, and then you end up judging. So you become judgmental of yourself. So you judge yourself as not worthy, not good enough, never going to have it together like Siobhan just said. Um, and then you end up sort of hiding and or isolating yourself and just think, oh, well, you know, people aren't going to like me or this or the situation I'm in, and so you pull away. And I remember doing that from church, and there was a year, there was about a year there where I, I think I probably went to church two or three times, and and pretty much withdrew away from regular communal activity. When I look back on that now, I, I realise I just followed that pattern of what shame does to you, and those things end up making it so much worse because you are falling right into the trap, if you like, of what that shame sets for you, judging yourself and your emotions and then you hide and you pull away and you disconnect or um, you, you disconnect from relationship or relationships. And, and that's actually one of the things you mm. need most to uh, come out of, uh, you know, the effects of shame and back into the light and, and, to be restored and to come back to your normal self. So, mm. What you were describing there in your experience, Nick, is the energy of shame yeah, is freeze. Yeah, we'll see. So what, what happens is we work against expression and release and we create this sense of deadness in ourselves. Um, so even when there is enormous energy hidden underneath, it, it looks like that freeze state. And to to build that interconnecting bridge back to relationship is the antidote. And it's interesting, isn't it? The the antidote to it feels like the worst thing in the world that you would want to do. There's no way I want to go and talk to anyone about this. Like it, it feels like like the the biggest <laughs> yes. wall that you could never climb, uh, and you want to run in the mm. opposite direction. But it's actually the best thing to do is to you know come out of the, the shadows away from shame, which is where it likes to hide, as I said. And, um, and again, Max, you mentioned Brené Brown's work. I think she's brought this idea of shame and vulnerability to the masses is you do have to be inherently vulnerable, don't you? Cause it, and that's probably the scariest part of that, that leap you know, out of the shadows, being vulnerable with, with safe people, with the right people, with trusted people. And that's I think, starts the, the journey back home. Yeah, that well said, Nick. And and Kurt Thompson talks about that as well, that, that the counterintuitive nature of what the healing or the solution is. Um, as he said, the last thing you want to do when you're feeling um, ashamed or, or not good enough is to reach out and show that yeah. to other people. Um, but that is the only thing that works. Um, and, and what I love about Kurt's work is that he says God's story is not like that. He, um, he took a risk in... Um, being open to be wounded 
um, when he made creation. And I think shame has a, a lot to do with some of that around the theme that um, one of the reasons we hide or we isolate is that we don't want to be wounded yeah. again. And so there's safety in um, retreating and withdrawing. Um, so being vulnerable also includes the the willingness and the ability to put yourself out there with safe community and safe people, but risk yeah. being hurt and being okay with that. Yeah, that's you know? that makes me think, Max, about that where you touched on, you know, it's the story we're telling ourselves is um, it's not just your own story, is it? It's that I have a story and we all have a wonderful story and we all and, and shame will get us telling a false story to ourselves. It's not the truth. It's not the story of our lives, but it can sure sound like it when you're in it. But we're also part of a um, a bigger story, and I think the the bigger story and and maybe you could touch on this, Siobhan, in terms of our, you know faith and spiritual connection. But understand coming to an understanding, and I, I know I certainly did that. You know what? I actually am part of a bigger story. That was a big help in terms of understanding where I was at and what shame was about. It's like, well, it's actually not all about me. I'm actually part of a much bigger story. And that has a lot to say about who I really am and what my, my real and true story is. Mm, mm. That that's really fundamental. I think to good, to good practice, to good counsel really is that when you are working with somebody who does experience that, that sort of, relational shame that shame of I am damaged I am not I am not good I am wrong that we really need to put our clients into a a space where they are able to dig into their resources to resource them to give them a sense of safety and stability and one of the go-tos for me certainly is to have a look in in the client's life and to harness their resources Mm. one of them in, in particular is to harness their their spiritual, their religious, their, their belief system resources and for them to really dig and anchor themselves into that. Anchor's a good word. And also to reframe vulnerability because I think the general understanding of what people believe vulnerability to be is weakness. It's a good point to make. Whereas yeah. Brene Brown, she really reframes that and says vulnerability yeah. is a strength. If you can allow yourself to be vulnerable, you're brave. What a strength that is to allow yourself to put yourself in that in that line where you can potentially have rejection. Yeah. I think that that's just a, a powerful thing to reframe that for people. If I'm vulnerable, it means that I'm strong. That's good, Siobhan, because it's not that vulnerability where you're going around um, without a filter in your brain telling everyone everything you think, is it? Like if I was in my role saying every day, you know, walking around saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. That's that's not necessarily being vulnerable all the time. It might not be very wise because it'll start to people might start to get a bit worried. But it is there are times where you can <laughs> say in a role, you know, I'm I'm not sure what the next step is here. Mm. And we go mm-hmm. rather than going, Well, I have all the answers every time in every meeting for mm. every situation, which is complete bollocks. Um mm. so it, it lives in between there, doesn't it? It's it's not sort of saying everything that comes to mind, but it's it's then saying I don't have all the answers. Um, yes. Um, I'm not sure what to do next. What do you think? Yes, um, yes. Or I've failed in this area before and I must admit I'm a bit gun-shy of doing it again. I just want to put that out there. Um, that to me seems healthy. I certainly think vulnerability is one of the key antidotes and the next key antidote is to be vulnerable to enter into a relationship of safety and stability yep. where you are at risk again. Yeah, even if you've been burnt before. 
Yes. Which all of us have to some degree. We're human beings and we are always going to let someone down. That's just how we are. And vulnerability says that I'm willing to place myself in a situation, of course, being wise, not just in any situation, but a relationship that's meaningful, a relationship that is fundamentally safe and being able to say I'm willing for this person to let me down and that's okay. And and I think that models who God is. At the very beginning in Genesis, we're introduced to a vulnerable God, yeah, someone who um, vulnerable in the sense that he's open to wounding, to being rejected, Um, but he takes that risk. It's not something that when... People get rejected or or put down needs to be the end of the world. Um, I think a lot of people who struggle with shame or addictions, um, they almost have a sense that uh, I can be real or connected or genuine because if I I let down or um, put down, then I won't be able to survive that. Uh, so I think it's teaching, um, give giving people the the resources, as you said, uh, Siobhan, and the um, just the courage to put themselves out there, to risk relationship, to have the courage to um, live genuinely and connected to community, even at the risk of people um, letting them down. I distinctly remember coming to a point of realisation uh, that I wasn't going to be able to fix myself. <laughs> I was going round and round and round and round and... and um, so I just echo that from that mm. lived experience, and we all have a will of experiences to some degree, depending on how much we lean into it, is that the disintegrating effect of shame is is about, okay, well, you don't use this language when you're in it, but but how do I reintegrate? Because um, shame disintegrates, and that is like what we're talking about, isn't it? Vulnerability and connection, uh, community, and, and really being, being – it's about being known, isn't mm. it? Mm. I think one of the risks, though, that a person has when when they do have chronic and toxic shame is that they will tend to catch it wherever it's thrown at them. It's like they have a radar on their head for shame, and if 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 yep. the ball is thrown at them, they will just automatically catch it. In my session today, I actually threw a ball at my client, and uh, her automatic response was to put her hands up to catch the ball. And I said, "Why did you catch it?" And she said, I don't know, it was my automatic response. I said, if you didn't catch it, what would happen? She said, I would just fall to the ground. And then you could see the light bulb. Oh, I don't have to catch every ball that's thrown at me. I can let it go to the ground. Yeah, 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 that's that's well said. So uh, for, if you haven't come across Brené Brown before, just go onto YouTube and look up Brené Brown, Shame and Vulnerability, or words to that effect. I don't know how many million downloads it's up to now, but it's a lot. Uh, so you'll find that easily. And also uh, the book by Kurt, C-U-R-T, Kurt Thompson, uh, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. You can get hold of that probably. It's in a North American book, but you can get hold of that online through online booksellers uh, and perhaps uh, perhaps in Australia. Depends where you're listening from. If you are from overseas, thanks for dialing in. It's great to have you. There's some really handy resources uh, and or as we would advocate when you're next seeing uh, or going to see a counsellor to have a chat about some of these things. If shame something that you've dealt with or have lived with for perhaps years and thought maybe, look, this is just how my life is now. I've just got to get by. 
Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Putting the hosting hat back on, Max and Siobhan, um, great to talk to you both again today. Uh, we've had some great content over the last couple of weeks in talking with Kate and with Amy and also what's coming up ahead in our uh, upcoming podcast. There's some wonderful stuff there. We'll talk more on that soon. Um, but thanks to you both today. Just, it's been great to talk with you. And this is a topic we could do. We could really go a lot further on this, and I suspect we will in future episodes because it's a biggie and we've just touched on threads that you could pull that are just rich with things that we know could really um, unpack this further and really help people because it is something, as we talked about, we all deal with and live with to, to varying extent. So how about we make an agreement that we'll come back on this topic? Love to. Sounds great. Yep. If you know people who, like you, are passionate about growing and learning and transformation, why don't you share this episode with them and also hit the subscribe button and give us a review. It all helps to spread the word. We really want your input to this podcast, so visit us at councilculture.org.au where you can send in your questions or recordings on a variety of topics, which we'll use to explore in future episodes. Thanks again, and remember, together we can impact our culture through good counsel. See you next time.